Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview edition of the Grant Williams podcast featuring my very special guest, Mike Rothman of Cornerstone Analytics. With the energy sector fast becoming the focus of everybody, whether from an investment perspective or otherwise, I'm delighted to have arguably the best energy analyst around join me to talk about the extraordinary forces at work within the sector. As you'll hear, reducing the energy sector down to a very simplistic decision tree is a huge mistake, but it's one many investors are making on a daily basis. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, This Week in Doom, and my brand new series, Shifts Happen, featuring Luke Groman, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show and you want more high-quality content like it, please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And with that, please enjoy the show. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. We've had to reschedule it a couple of times for various reasons, but we've finally... Uh, find ourselves with a chance to talk. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks for uh, having me on your program. You know, uh, you and I have uh, several mutual friends in common, and uh, every one of them has always been glowing about your work. And and I thought this was just a fantastic time to bring you on and talk to the audience about the energy markets. And the beauty of your work and the way you talk about the situation is there are no holds barred, no punches pulled. You, you, You talk about things in a very real way. And I think it's really important for people to have a genuine understanding of how the energy world is rather than how they'd like it to be. So I think what I'd like to start off with is, uh, you know, I watched a presentation you gave with uh, one of our mutual friends, Dave Rosenberg, where you gave a superb backdrop to the realities of the energy market. So perhaps we could kick off with how the world is, and then we'll talk about um, potential shifts in that world. Yeah, so I'm not the politically correct guy uh, it just works out that way. Uh, I've been at this not quite 40 years. Clients lovingly refer to me as the Andrew Dice Clay of the oil markets because <laughs> I do not, uh, I, I do not sugarcoat things. Uh, I've worked with five different administrations and different kinds of uh, people in various parts of government uh, as sort of an outside consultant. And I feel like the best answers are the ones that are blunt and uh, to the point, and if I don't know something, I just say, I don't know, and I'll try to get an answer. But it's kind of hard to uh, compartmentalize the last few years, and you end up leaving out a lot of things that might matter. But if you want to boil it down, we, we saw this collapse in demand from isolating and containment measures related to COVID in 2020, biggest drop in oil demand ever, dwarfed what happened in the, the global credit crisis. OPEC responded with the largest ever production cut to keep inventories from swelling. And the reason in a lot of our work and what our clients are used to seeing, inventories and oil prices are strongly inversely related. So 
If the global system is seeing inventories build, it means there's excess and prices should weaken and vice versa. So OPEC's job was to prevent a cataclysmic build in inventories. But the thing is, those events, in some regard, mask bigger picture trends that are in place and not generally focused on. So number one is the idea of oil demand growth remaining in a secular uptrend. Now, this will feed into other questions I'm sure people might have about green energy or green energy initiatives, but the world runs on oil. There is no substitute for oil to account for what's used for transportation, believe it or not, and petrochemicals. And generally, oil demand grows at about half of the rate of GDP. So as everything was happening related to COVID and all these isolating and containment measures called various dislocations, the thing is, the assumption was after we get past the pandemic, we're going to be back to the secular growth in demand. What was problematic for people to uh, come to terms with was a commensurate rebound in supplies from the non-OPEC countries. So I know this is not an oil audience, but when you talk about uh, global oil supply, the world breaks down into the OPEC countries and the non-OPEC countries. The non-OPEC countries basically will always produce at full capacity. They don't keep any spare production in check. It's usually 100% whatever's available. And then the OPEC countries, whether they like it or not, tend to be something of a balance wheel. The issue with the non-OPEC story and why this matters to such a broader group of people is that the oil industry has seen and cut back its spending on production businesses dramatically over the last eight years. We're down about $2.2 trillion in spending on the oil production side of the business. Now, that number may not mean anything, so just take my word, that is a lot of money uh, and a lot of resources not going into uh, something that you need to keep investing in. And we have seen in the last 10 years, almost 100% of all the non-OPEC supply growth come from one country, the US, and it's been dominated by shale oil. Now, shale oil was portrayed by many, many people as kind of a savior for the global oil markets. It was going to be this inexhaustible supply of liquids. It would keep oil prices low forever. And it was really uh, marketed hard by a lot of the people, probably who were doing the investment banking side of uh, transactions for firms in the industry. But the problem with shale oil is a fewfold. Number one, it's by definition a burst of production or what we call a short life resource. So the industry basically has to keep drilling its brains out to try to replace production from your existing wells. And again, I know this is not an oil audience. But the thing is, a typical oil field will produce for 30, 40, or 50 years, and a shale oil well only has a life of about five years. So you're really talking about a very short-term amount of liquid. That's number one. Number two, related to that, is back in 2019, to our clients, we were publishing work that suggested we were entering the twilight phase of shale. So we were seeing U.S. crude oil production growth, but it was happening at a slower and slower and slower rate. So mathematically, it's referred to as a negative second derivative, but it just means it's growing at a slower and slower, slower rate. Why would we care about that? Because that feeds into the bigger issue about the longevity of relying on shale oil as a source of liquid or crude for the global oil markets. And when you look at the 10 years that that all happened in, 
the other 79 countries that make up non-OPEC supply didn't grow. And we had $100 per barrel oil in about half of that time. So that was a fairly big red flag. And of course, the issue of green energy initiatives and the things that you'll hear about regarding moving away from oil started to really now intensify the pressure on oil companies to not invest in their production capacity, which will basically only heighten the bullish pressures on the oil market. So this idea that we can somehow quit oil that's been pushed by a lot of people that have their own agendas really is a disservice because the world does not have the ability to move away from using petroleum. So you say, what, what does all that shit mean? Well, it means your demand's gonna keep growing, your non-OPEC supply is not gonna keep pace, which means you're now gonna rely on OPEC to fill the gap. And of course, OPEC at this point has much more limited spare production capacity than what we've seen historically. So when I started to attend OPEC meetings, which is in 1986, those meetings used to last for weeks. Literally, you would go away and you would be gone for a couple of weeks. My first meeting in December 86 was 17 days. They were fighting over like 200,000 barrels a day of quota cuts because no one wanted to cut production. They had gone from producing 31 million barrels a day in 1981 to 16 million barrels a day when I showed up. So they had 15 million barrels of spare capacity when the whole world was using only 60 million a day. So it was very tough to get these agreements. If you look at what happened, say, in August of 1990, Iraq invades Kuwait, 4.2 million barrels of exports disappear overnight, literally. That's what those two countries were sending out. The rest of OPEC was able to make that up within three weeks. So no problem when you had a disruption or any kind of a dislocation. And you fast forward to where we are today, and of course, the issue of Russia comes up. And there's been estimates suggesting that we're going to lose 3 million barrels a day of Russian production from various self-imposed embargoes and sanctions. And you say, well, if you lose 3 million a day, which would be a fairly significant event in its own right, OPEC can't make that up. In fact, the rest of the world can't make that up. And this is sort of a reflection of these structural supply and demand pressures that are very, very bullish and not going away. And a number of the large consuming countries like the U.S. have talked about these massive releases of emergency oil inventories, and they will not be able to offset these structural bullish pressures. So we find ourselves in a situation where bullish oil market fundamentals continue to unfold and not to beat up on the green energy initiatives or things like that. But the pressures coming from that anti-carbon lobbying will cause the pressure on oil companies to intensify to not spend on this needed upstream capacity. I, I hear your dog in the background. I want more dogs on my podcast. I, I, <laughs> you stop I, there. So I, that's funny, man. He's, he's the house dog. I, I'm sorry. I no, can, let him rip. I can go let yell him at him if you want me to take a break. No, let him rip. I want, I want more dogs, not less. Um, so, Mike, uh, you, you touched on there about just how reliant the world is upon carbon fuel. So just put some color around that, because you know, when I saw your presentation, it's like getting smacked in the head. The full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. 
Nothing we discuss should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.